excited to share this series of podcasts with you. This summer, we've invited experts in the City and Guilds Foundations Network to help us explore how training and skills development can increase inclusion and diversity in our organisations. In this podcast, we explore LGBTQ plus in the workplace of today and look at the type of training that organisations need to ensure the retention and progression of LGBTQ plus individuals. Welcome to our event today. This is a series of events that the City and Guilds Foundation are putting on, um, looking at the role of training and skills development and how it can help help us all create more diverse and inclusive organisations. Today, as a way of celebrating Pride Month, we're focusing on what being LGBTQ plus feels like in the workplace and what type of training employers need to think about to ensure the retention and progression of our LGBTQ plus colleagues. I'm delighted to be joined by a first class panel who I'll introduce you to just in one minute. Uh, We're really hoping that people will take some action after coming to some of these events. So uh, we're going to be talking to you about um, maybe taking a pledge of doing something small, big, whatever, just taking some action after this. And I'll come back at the end and tell you how to go about doing that. So now it's my great pleasure to introduce my guest speakers today. Uh, First of all, uh, we have Dr. Anne Lim, who is the Vice Chair and Chair-Elect of City and Guilds, and Anne's going to leave our discussion to lead our discussion today, so welcome Anne. Thank you. Uh, We also have Tanya Compass, who is the CEO and founder of Exist Loudly. Welcome Tanya. We have Jay Sloan, who's the Organisational Development Lead at GSK. Welcome Jay. And finally, we've got our very own Kirsty Donnelly, CEO of City and Guilds. So welcome, Kirsty. Lovely to see you all today. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to hand over to Anne. Thank you, Sally, and many thanks to City and Guilds and you and the team for organising this series of events that you've just explained. We are number four in, uh, very appropriately, in uh, Pride Month, uh, focusing today, uh, as you have said, on, on the workplace and how we... Uh, bring ourselves to the workplace really. So my role in this is just to help chair uh, and move things along. Um, I I will perhaps interject with the odd um, bit of my story or something relevant if that uh, comes about. But actually you've got three terrific people here um, and we want to hear just a little bit about your stories to to get things um, going if you if you don't mind and there's no a special order in which this couple of minutes um, goes but um maybe if we start with you jay because you and i have had a chance to to have a chat if you could just tell us all a little bit about how you experience being uh somebody from the lgbtq plus community in your your workplace yeah i'm sure so just to mention just we, we like a little bit of labels, I think, in the LGBTQ plus uh, space. So identifies uh, primarily queer is the, the word I like to use, but also gay and non-binary. So my pronouns are they, them. I think, and I'm very, very out at work. In fact, one of my friends used to describe me as the biggest gay at GSK. And that's intentional, you know, because I think uh, at some point we need to make a decision to be visible and be seen. And so that's what I've chosen to do. In addition to my day job, I would say um, over the past 20 years doing various things, as you mentioned, ended up in organizational development. And I think I've also been a leader in our employee resource group. And 
I would say on some level an advisor to, to senior leaders who are curious and interested and motivated, you know, to create a more inclusive, inclusive space for LGBTQ people. And I think also have an interest in looking at the science, life sciences and healthcare industry as a whole. And so I, I helped co-found and I currently co-chair something called the Proud Science Alliance. And um, you can look it up online, Google it, Google it and uh, learn a little bit more. But that's kind of how I exist, I would say, at work. Terrific. That's a great introduction and um, uh, leads very nicely into Tanya. Do you mind going next and telling us about about Exist Loudly and yourself? Of course. So, um, so yeah, I guess my kind of career wise is, you know, as a queer person, it's been, again, very, very different, I feel like. Um, for me, I came into the, you know, I came out, I came into the like, charity, charity kind of sector straight out of university. And I was still straight then, you know what I mean? I was still straight. I still thought, you know, I'm heterosexual, da da da. And then I started working at a social justice organization where you go into schools and you're talking around like all these various different issues. And then obviously you're, as staff, we used to do these things called lunch and learns where every, any, what you could talk about anything you wanted, whatever your favorite thing is. And there was a person called Frankie who started working there. At first of all, oh Frankie's so weird, da da da. And Frankie, you know, was very, very um, visibly queer. Um, and would talk around like queerness and just LGBTQ plus identities, gender expression things in language in ways that was really accessible and in ways that I've never heard said to me in a way that was like, hmm, you know, that kind of piqued my interest. And then, um, yeah, and we, you know, we, we wanted as, as a colleagues to go and support Frankie at Pride because Frankie was like, oh, you know, they, a lot of their friends were what busy and stuff. And we're like, oh, we'll, we'll go to support Frankie because Frankie was the only like openly like queer person at work. And then went there and then I was like, I think I'm gay and that was really, that was really about it um, you know and from that point it was kind of you know you go through and you're talking with kids and you're again you're explaining things surrounding um, being LGBTQ plus and what that looks like especially as a black person especially someone you know from London all these different various different you know various different aspects of identity and I feel like from that point of my understanding whereby, whereby we work with young people young people just want to meet you as who you are they don't want you to be this person who you think is the coolest or whatever they just want to see you as who they are and like even from that point you know i've got worked in sports for development charities i've worked at lgbtq plus homeless charity and things and it's like it's been really interesting navigating the world as somebody again who is lgbtq plus and also someone who is black because you have like in the charity sector it is it is normally very heterosexual and very white and it's so even you know it can be an lgbtq plus organization that says Hey, the black issues talking about that is too much. You can be a, you know, one that is is a very diverse in terms of race-wise organization that says, hey, why do you have to make everything so gay? And it's just like, well, I can't win. And that's how obviously now I've ended up with it just loudly with my own organization, um, which is to support black LGBTQ plus young people. And it's mm. it's great. I think obviously now I can set what my work agreement is and things, and I, I you know, we can be as unapologetically gay and black and whatever without anyone telling us to kind of tone it down because it might offend their funders or offend staff member or whatever it may be. Uh, so yeah, it's been an interesting journey to say the least, but again, I would never expect when I first started the charity sector, I'd end up with my own supporting LGBTQ plus people considering for 23 years, I thought I was straight. So yeah, it's been a <laughs> different journey to say the least. Terrific, Tanya. That's given us again so uh, many insights, really, which we can just follow up in the in the in the, in the discussions. Um, uh, every story is uh, just unique and fantastic, isn't it? And there's so much to learn from that. Um, so, Kirsty, what do you want to tell us? 
Yeah, no, it's interesting just listening then to uh, Tanya and even Jay, you know, Jay, when he talked about labels, I'll come back to that. And and Tanya, which said, when do you know? Actually, it's really funny. It was made me reflect. When do you know uh, about your uh, your sexuality, who you are? And, and, and it's really, it took me back really to, I think I started to have suspicions about myself when I was in the playground and 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 we used to play the old fashioned game. I don't think it happens anymore. Kiss catch and used to kiss, kiss catch somebody go around the back of the bike sheds. We're very advanced. We're very progressive school, you know. This was an infant space as well. And I was always a bit perturbed that I wanted to chase all the girls and kiss them and not the boys. Um, but no, I mean, or maybe sometimes both even. But and there's a serious point in that. And I suppose I was. I look back now and I think, gosh, wasn't I lucky? I never felt that I ever got bullied for that. Actually, if anything, at the time I had two very big book teeth. I still got two big teeth, but they're no longer book thanks to my parents getting me braces. But the point is, I got teased more for that than I did for the fact that I clearly didn't realize at that point that I was going to ultimately be labeled one day with some terminology, whether it was gay, lesbian, whatever terminology is used. And, and I suppose that brings me back to, um, you know, about labels. It's funny how labeling has become more important, um, more of late, really, because it's about feeling like you can belong. You know, we all, it's a tribal thing, isn't it? We all feel that we want to belong, but I suppose I've never, never felt I needed to in any way label myself. Um, and I remember when I first told my mom, when I really did truly, as you might say, come out in the sense that I took my mum to a pub, I came back from university and said, look, mum, I've got something to tell you. I don't think I'm probably ever going to get married and give you grandchildren. I think this is going to be my you know, path of life. Not that I hadn't also had boyfriends too. And I remember she cried and I was like, oh my God, that's not the reaction. My mum was a very soft, loving, open-hearted woman. I was shocked that her response was to cry. And when she stopped crying, she said, I'm not crying because I'm unhappy about your choice. I'm frightened for you as to have you yeah. just made your life a lot harder now this remember is what i don't know 30 or 54 today so it's 30 something years ago so um i can now see why she might have thought that then so i'm just delighted we're able to have this conversation today in a way that whilst there are still challenges and barriers as we're going to hear and discuss it is so much different now i think than it was generally generationally for me and probably for you as well Anne. i think that there is a general generational aspect to this and i think within that generational aspect there's how do you identify yourself so I've always felt really lucky that I've just always been me I've never ever hidden my sexual uh, sexuality or choices I've just always felt it's about the people you love or the people you fall in love with and if that happens to be a woman it's a woman if it happens to be a man it's a man or it happens to be someone transgender it's someone's transgender so I've never defined myself by by that identity but I do understand why labels have become a little bit more significant so yeah just a little bit of a insight from me Terrific. I'll just, um, I'm meant to be um, uh, sort of chairing this, but uh, I think I'm allowed my two minutes as well. Um, uh, but but actually, it very much builds on what Kirsty said, because, of course, I'm the, the grandmother in the uh, picture here. I'm 68. So generationally, as far as Tanya and Jay and probably a, a number of you, uh, I hope a number of you um, much younger listening and watching today. Um, and um, uh, the uh, experience I had is not dissimilar to Kirsty's, really. It, you know, it was, it was, it was, you've got to go back to what it was like in the 80s, which of course some of you don't know, but if you have seen It's a Sin, uh, which is terrific, it really, you know, reminds you of it. Um, so life was very different and actually just being a woman, never mind defining yourself in any way, was quite a, a struggle. Um, uh, so I won't just go over that background, but actually what made a difference to me as an older person 
uh, were two things. One was getting involved with young people in scouting, where actually, just as Kirsty has said, so it's a charity world, Tanya, it's a big UK um, organization, worldwide organization. But what really matters is who you are and, and how you come to scouting. Um, gender fluidity was something, a term that they taught me and, um, and, and being who they are and valuing the other and respecting the differences. It's so encouraging when you see younger people actually telling older people to do that. So, you know, that's really great. And then the second, um, and I'll end with this, was the opportunity that um, a guy called uh, Neil Bentley Gochman gave, gave to me um, ages ago when we were both in the closet um, and actually working in Learn Direct with Kirsty. And I know Jeff Greenwich is on this call as well. Um, uh, uh, Neil was at the CBI and, um, and, uh, and he's gay, um, uh, but he wasn't open about it. In fact, he, he said recently only when he got the OBE did he have to be open about it. So, you know, there we go. But Neil said a couple of years ago, the FE sector, uh, further education, skills training the world of city and guilds actually and the world I know and, and I'm passionate about has tons of young people and we're not doing enough as a sector to um, support LGBTQ plus we're not as employers the topic of today mm -hmm. doing enough and he arranged a little event and he asked me to come along and, and I did speak about that and actually in a sense that was the first time I was really open about it um, uh, and since then I've, I've never stopped really, in one sense, uh, so I will stop now. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's something very liberating, I have to say, about living in the 2020s. And I hope, turning to our topic here, we can have a look at the way in which employers and individuals in the workplace can uh, support inclusion and diversity, but particularly uh, with regard uh, to uh, LG. BTQ plus uh, um, uh, um, in individuals uh, and, uh, and colleagues and employers. So um, anybody want to just um, start off? I mean, Jay, coming back to you, you've mentioned a little bit about what GSK does. Do you want, do you want to explore uh, a bit of that in a bit more detail, give us some ideas? Yeah, the way, the, the way I would talk about this in terms of providing some sort of education or training uh, targeting LGBTQ plus people is that I think it's still <laughs> somewhat old school. And the reason why I say it in those terms is because in my own mind, I'm quite progressive. And so what I think what we what exists currently is kind of remedial training, as I would call it, or, or preventative, you know, because we talk about unconscious bias training or leadership training that's inclusive. So there's modules that really bring in examples of LGBTQ plus uh, situations, that kind of thing. And so, but the, what is, what is the purpose behind that? It's really to say, don't discriminate or, you know, don't be this person, you know, who does this, these things. And so in that sense, there's benefit, you know, because I can show up at a place like GSK and I don't, I walk down the hallways or whatever, and people don't call me names or, you know, there's no active discrimination. I think um, what we need to start talking about and what is on my mind is that as a queer person showing up at work, there's nothing targeting me. In fact, um, I've been in part of conversations really for years, you know, about can we implement something, you know, that, and the reason for that is because if you, if you look at it really closely, there are leadership programs, for example, targeting women 
because of the, the, the events of the last couple of years, really raising race and ethnicity to the, to the front, there are program, there is programming, you know, designed to support not just uh, getting uh, people different into the door, but in this case, uh, supporting women and uh, people from different races and ethnicities outside the minority into leadership roles and supporting them to, to grow. I don't see that happening. It's rare. In fact, in the past few years, there's been one company that I've interacted with, you know, that does that that actively. So, I think um, I think what I would like to see is that switch away from make sure you don't do these things to once you know queer people show up, then we're so glad you're here and let us support you, you know, because I think they're. And there's a good reason for that because there's discrepancies in leadership positions, the same as you see in women or um, in uh, ethnic minorities as well and senior positions, you know, so there's something going on, you know, about that. Mm. That's how I would introduce it. I'm interested to hear what other people have to say about it. Yeah, as well. yeah. no, I think that's a really good introduction. So, I mean, Kirsty, what um, are, we, are we doing in City and Guilds to address that? Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on what, what, what we're doing now and what we could do more of really yeah no well i mean i think look it's a slightly overused cliche to say but we're on a journey i think like lots of organizations i think we've had a rude awakening haven't we as a, as a culture as a society and sitting gills is is no less or no more i hope like to think in some respects we've been doing more for longer but that isn't to say uh, to address a whole range of issues that, that are encompassed by diversity and inclusion of which this is part of that agenda and i was struck by a conversation i was in with um deborah francis white who is the raconteur and comedian social commentator she did a an event with me in a, an apprentice conference quite recently where she talked to, to the acronym now of dib dib diversity inclusion and belonging but it really really struck with me that because it struck me because i think that belonging i think that's what jay's talking about i mean we can train we must train we must try and address through awareness raising which is what we're trying to do Antoine, to your question directly having holding events like this not just so that all colleagues with cross sitting guilds can attend as indeed lots of them have been but so that we can shine a light externally as well but it goes beyond that it goes to the heart of how do you create a culture and a community that's about creating a sense of belonging and I suppose you can you do that through your behaviors top down bottom up and I'm hoping that you know to a certain extent that's why I mean I I often joke these days that the title of chief exec is a uh, chief executive officer is more like chief uh, emotional officer or chief engagement officer because mm -hmm. a lot of the job that you have to do as leaders and need to be doing as leaders is creating that environment for belonging so that everybody can come and feel they belong and so I think that's where we're really shining a light and is yes of course we've got our diversity diversity inclusion targets and those targets include where we recruit from so that we create greater diversity we make it so as jay just said a welcoming place for people who are whatever they want to label themselves as. when they arrive they don't feel like they're slightly out of place in some shape or form but it just takes time i think it, these things take time to bed in a single training course isn't going to address it but okay. it doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't be doing things that actually help raise that awareness it's a really about that deep rooted sent behavioral change and cultural shift that I think we're starting on at Sitting Gills and already gone quite a long way down, but there's more for us to do. Um, at, at Tanya, culture change and behavioral change. <laughs> Somebody's put uh, something in the in the in the Q&A about is lack of discrimination sufficient for inclusivity, which is part of what we're talking about now. So in the charity sector, 
um, or, or in, in any of your worlds really, um, have you any thoughts on how you really help get genuine uh, behavioural cultural change that leads to that sense of belonging? Of course, I think that is, I think essentially I think a lot of, where a lot of like businesses, corporates, non-profits go wrong is that you look at doing the external first, so they will externally maybe change their marketing and comms, whether it's to have black PSE openly like visibly queer faces on their on their marketing comms, whether it's they do, you know, use illustrations and all these things to be like, hey, look, on look, we are looking at this, but actually internally, what does your, what does that look like? And I think that re requires having like a, an audit actually around your staff and actually giving staff an opportunity of having external um, auditors to actually work, look over how safe do they feel within the workplace and not safe in terms of like how safe, how like, you know, physically safe you feel, but actually mentally, emotionally and how much of their authentic selves can they bring into the work, workplace and how much do they have to leave at home? And I think that kind of distinguishing around that, but I think that as um, Chris, uh, Chris, Chris was saying earlier, it's so easy to get kind of like uh, focusing on the labels and being, you know, being like, now we're going to focus on LGBTQ plus and now we're going to focus on black and now we're going to focus on women. And it's like, I know, for example, when women, International Women's Month comes up, Pride Month, Black History Month, I am busy and booked the whole three months because that's suddenly now the time when people want to hear what we have to say. But like we exist in these things all year round. And I think you're doing a disservice to the company, to, your, to, your, to the person, to individuals, by virtue of looking at everyone by virtue of their labels versus by them on a human, like individual level. Yeah. Because it's like through... And I think by it's like you need to be able to invest in, for example, in hiring external facilitators to come and facilitate training and talks with um with your with you know with, with your senior management team. I think it has to start with senior management first. Like there's been so like, you know, there's been so many times where I've been in past jobs and stuff like that where you know I went to what we went, went to one potential funder and I was made to you know bring my young people down there and my young people all predominantly black and um black and brown um, from Brixton and we went there. And it was led, the day of training was led by like a, you know, uh, by someone from the CSR team or something. But all the young people saw the whole day was just fields of white, like faces of white people, white upper class, middle class people. And of these people saying, back in my day, I was 16 and I left school and I made it. Now you can do it too. And it was just like, God, like you, it's just so tone deaf. And it got even worse when one of the young people actually asked why is there no you know why you've shown us all the pictures you know your slides of your senior management team why is there no one that's black and brown in it and when the women from hr was in it they gave a very like you know professional pc answer and then after the young person asked again because they never we got kind of got fobbed off and then the young person asked again this is when the woman wasn't there and the woman from senior management was like oh it's because it's easy it's harder to um hire diverse people at a senior management level because it requires more qualifications but you know if you look at our stores we're really really diverse and what you're telling, and this is meant to be an empowering day for these young people. This is a massive, massive brand. And I'm like, and I then sent a message to my colleague who set up this whole thing in the first place. And I said, hey, this was the girl, like I had to debrief the young people afterwards because they were really impacted. They, they said, oh, wait, so you're telling me I can only aspire to work in your store, but I can't aspire to your, um, corp, you know, to work in a senior management team. And I said that to my colleague, you know, a white guy. And he basically said, oh, but they didn't mean it like that, did they? And I'm like, well, you weren't there. And you're telling me now as somebody who has had to, who's had to deal with now a group of 13 young people aged 16 to 18, all these girls who, you know, wanted to work in, in these businesses, who are now being told you're only as good to sell the clothes. And it's just like, it wasn't, and that then goes back on both, you know, when you're looking at a charity level, it's like looking at the funders that you go with because, and who's leading your business development, who's leading the partnerships, because are they then telling people, you know, are they actually really letting people know what the young people are like coming into the room? Are they saying, hey, 
make sure the young people want to they don't, they don't care about what your role is they just care about being around people that they can that they see them there was one you know there's one woman, the only person that said anything of worth during that whole day was a young young girl you know she's a she white, white girl from london whatever she was like in any on paper there's nothing at all that's similar about her compared to young people but she came in and said listen i'm here doing an unpaid internship i work at marks and spencer the weekend to pay for thingy um it was just real she was just herself she wasn't trying to fob off and say create this like oh because i you know i was so hard for me she said no i've chosen to work this because i really want to get in the business and that's the only way that i can is by doing an unpaid internship and the young people literally lapped up everything she said you know she was wonderful and it's like i think there's there's such a it becomes very clear even in how businesses engage within their csr work actually what the real sentiments are around diversity and inclusion because again you look at you know the foundations and you see all the you know business like, there was one that i tried to reach out for last year exists loudly and there was um you know i was like oh do you want to donate you know some jackets or whatever to a winter coat drive we're doing and then i got you know very like uh, again a bit long email just fobbing off saying oh we do all these things and they you know provide the impact report and i think sometimes people don't understand that like, i actually read these things so I go through it and I was like, I was like, I'm really, you know, I'm very, I've got ADHD, so for me, I can really like, I get interested in things and I'm like, I must like learn everything about it. And I was like, so I went through it, you know, you see the trustee board and everyone was, everyone was white, majority all male, and you work through the fact, the things that they work, the organisation they're working with, none of which are black led, none of which are LGBTQ plus. And I put it out, I was like, oh, hey, like, you know, it's great to see the work you're doing. I've noticed you're not working with anyone LGBTQ plus or any black led organisations. If at one point in the future you'd like to explore this, I would love to open up a conversation with you. And then I got an email sent out back saying, oh, but we're working with the Stephen Lawrence Foundation. And I was like, okay, well, that's one, one, you know, and then and then it came back on very, very defensive responses. And it was, and it was because they are not used to being called out, they're used to being celebrated because they're doing something good. But it's like you can always do more. And by and when people again labels and stuff, and it's a tick box, we have to work with one black. Let's work, let's work with trans organizations, let's work with an LGBTQ plus organization. But you can have a black trans LGBTQ plus person working in one organization that has nothing to do with gender identity or anything. It could be like environment stuff, you know, and it's just like, but they, again, it's so focused on labels that it means that you rob yourself of actually genuinely creating the connections needed to create the impact that people are striving for um, internally in the business and externally with your CSR work. But there's so much work that needs to be done and it all starts with having genuine conversations like we're having today. Yeah, no, can I just, um, can I just yeah, come in, come in, Kirsty, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you and Jay will want to as well, Anne, but um, look, I think that's absolutely right, Tanya, and I think that's why I was saying right at the beginning about this belonging. It is about this, it's mind shift, it's belonging, it's culture, it's all of that. It's, I, I can see there's a really good question uh, that we'll come to later from Rebecca about what is it something you are doing that you, when you really demonstrate, and you know, and it, the problem with this, of course, is it, it's almost the intangible is when you'll really know it's truly embedded and Anne, you asked me the question earlier, you know, what is Sitting Gills doing? One of the things I, I should have said at, at the time, but something Tanya just reminded me of, was we did a piece of work last year around a program called The Lived Experience. And it was fascinating. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in any way trying to promote out there for everybody else, but Keris, led by Frank, um, um, who's Frank Douglas, who's one of our, happens to also be one of our great trustees and a great advocate of diversity inclusion and uh, in, in, in all shapes and forms, but of, uh, certainly around obviously people of colour and um, ethnic minority. He, you know, he really encouraged me as a CEO to think long and hard about what is the true lived experience of this organisation. And I was genuinely 
really quite shocked what we found out. Don't be wrong, there was really loads of positives in there. But when you look really deeply through the lens of somebody who, you know, attaches themselves to a label of LGBTQ+, or someone who's um, from an ethnic minority, or someone who's disabled, has a disability of some kind, whatever the segmentation, which is how we did the groups originally, came out, every one of the common denominators through every one was to create a lived experience. You've got to create that psychological safety. You've got to create that safe environment where people really feel they can belong and and I suppose uh, so going back really to the the chat in a way that some of the questions in the chat mm -hmm. that's what I think organizations have to really do they have to really as you say Tanya not just have a tick box you have to set targets of course you do because if you don't have anything to measure you'll never know but you have to really be able to also measure those intangibles as well and really look at all dimensions not just say great we've now got a strategy for this a strategy for that we've ticked that box it's got to be really deep and meaningful and I think these things take years to really really properly embed I just want to add in as well because I feel when you were talking, um, it made me like the last talk, like the one of the charities I used to work at actually was fund. I delivered a program funded by City and Guilds, and it was you know, and it was and it was the first time I ever managed my own program. Um, and I was you know, it's called it's called Generation Storm, and we've done it for like two years. And it that is actually that whole my exercise now is actually based entirely upon Generation Storm that was again was funded by City and Guilds, and I say that because. You know, first of all, having Mar so Marcia, I don't know if Marcia still works City and Guilds or not, but Marcia was heading up. He's online now. Oh, I love Marcia. Anyway, Marcia, I don't think understand. I don't think Marcia understands that, like, having a black woman, for example, lead. This is the first time I was going into, you know, moving into the senior team within this organization, and I was, I was really nervous because, you know, normally I, I, you know, I dress, I dress more masculine, I wear tracksuits, I'm da da da, and I go went in, and I felt like every time I always felt like I had to shift who I was to be able to be seen in that space. And Marcia was delivering. We had like a. I think it was like a day, one day, maybe two days, I can't remember, but it was like, had all these other organisations that people, that City and Guilds are funding, majority of whom were all people from, like, it was probably one of the best, like, everyone was able to build a genuine connection between all these organisations. You have people from Ireland, from Jordan, people that didn't, you know, again, vast variety of people that just, and it was incredible to learn about these organisations from a very authentic place, because you're not talking around it, you were, I didn't feel like I had to perform and be something else, like, you know, everyone has had all their formal presentations and I just said just went and sat at the table and just spoke and everyone listened and, it was, and I felt valued that's what I respected and people's the virtue is everyone in that space and um, sees value in supporting communities and that was that was the one like kind of common thread between everyone and again having Marcia as being the person that I was mainly you know liaising with and stuff like that was you know it was incredible for me having a black woman leader and for me leading a program that was not specifically black but by virtue of myself and my colleagues who don't lead it both being black women our majority of young people there were all black and sitting girls engaged with it. We had um, Polly as well, who also engaged with, like really engaged with the work. They came to, you know, I was, I, I done an International Women's Day event um, that I was fundraising for and sitting girls, you know, done a cake sale to fundraise to help put money towards it, you know, and it was just like such a small thing. Cause you already funded, you already funded the whole program, you know, but you're doing a cake sale to put extra money in. And it's like, because of that connection that I had with, with the team, again, with the funders, which I've never had with any other funders, I never was expected to ask, I was never asked any questions by sitting girls and for impact reporting in terms of like, oh, what trauma have the young people gone through and what is that which I've had happen at other ones, which have been really problematic. There was nothing, like genuinely, there was nothing exploitative. And that's why even it's like, and I say this not to be like, oh, because I'm gonna call sitting girls, but genuinely I've always spoken so highly around how the um, funding relationship I had with Fit Sitting Girls was because I felt like I was seen as my full self and therefore I could bring 
and therefore they could you lot could see the richness of the program and i wanted to invite you into the richness of the program because i wanted you to see that the impact that you were making by virtue of just seeing me and seeing the young people it's just young people not by virtue of being oh we're helping some black kids like no no we're helping young people and that is honestly what i haven't seen across other other funders um ever at this point Look, Daniel, that's so good to hear. Um, uh, uh, but I want to just look, uh, so thank you for that. And it's great to hear the energy and, and the impact. Um, uh, I just want to move us in, and it might be that Jay has something to say about this, in, into, it picks up the, the question, I think it was from Rebecca that Kirsty uh, um, uh, sort of responded to about what is the biggest one thing that can happen uh, that would make a difference. But can you can you look at that? Um, panel in relation to the role of leadership, particularly, because, um, uh, you know, we are lucky in City and Guilds that we have a leader in Kirsty and who is giving some of the examples of this. Uh, lots of other charities, workplaces, there's a task to be done with leadership um, to help them um, get into the right um, frame of mind, really, uh, and, and, and to do all the things that you've all been talking about. So j just start with you, Jay, on that. Do you, mm. you say, say something about, about that from a GSK point of yeah. view, from your own point of view? Yeah, and just to build a bridge between what was being talked about before and where we're going now is that it's my personal opinion is if if you're listening to the chat before and it resonates that like oh my organization ticks boxes or we're heading in that direction that's the bare minimum mm -hmm. and if you're not even there yet you're way behind the curve and i think with with any organization if you're thinking about what do we need to do i, I agree you need to have uh, targets otherwise how can you report how can you really understand but um, that's kind of basic, you know? So I think where I, I can talk about the experience I have at GSK and we are beyond, the organization is beyond. The way the, that I talk is beyond, you know? Because I'm like, that that is like, so five years ago, 10 years ago, you know? It's like, if you're not doing the stuff that Tanya's talking about, get with it, you know? And I think the other thing is, is that um, if you're at the place now where you're trying to do something different, and it's a hard question, what is the one thing? I mean, I think um, certainly, I think what what makes the biggest difference is what somebody already mentioned. It's about leadership, you know, because you have senior leaders that aren't just talking the talk, that they're out there, they're showing up, they're talking about it and saying the words like, or the, the acronyms like LGBTQ, and being very specific, they show up when they're being asked to show up and they resource it. And that doesn't mean all the time money. They're giving their time, they're showing up and, and saying what's uh, what's going on. Um, but also I think what they're doing is supporting is what we're talking about here, you know, moving beyond of kind of <laughs> catering to the straight white man and saying, ooh, let's take care of you, you know, because you don't quite get it yet. So we're just gonna give you some training so you don't discriminate. <laughs> you know, that's that's yesterday. What I, what I think the biggest difference is where are the programs? You know, uh, I'll give you one example. So at GSK, we have a women's leadership program. It's uh, coaching, essentially. I coach on that program, have done for four years. And it's a multifaceted program. And, and I work with exceptional women, and it's an exceptional program. And in my personal experience, it also means advancement of these women. You know, and that's exactly what it's designed to do. I was like, what? and they just in the past year have extended that out to uh, ethnic minorities. Fantastic. But I don't see any of that happening. In fact, I was like, can we at least just have coaching designed to be accepting of LGBTQ 
most people and they're like we went through it and ultimately it was shut down you know so i think what we're what the message to me is that we want to be inclusive but we're not going to you know we're not going to put in place you know the programs that we have for other other uh, communities the difference you know so what is the one thing you can do is i think move beyond you know it's like beyond because the thing is really hard to define it look inter internal to your organization and then make decisions about how can you not just kind of talk about it but, but do some stuff don't be on the sidelines be in the arena you know with with me you know that's that's why i would uh, describe it I mean, yeah, Kirsty. Um, yeah. I think I love that phrase. Uh, so we'll definitely be borrowing that. Thank you, Jay. That's always a great thing about these conversations and move beyond, because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you're right. Anyone who's just ticking boxes and saying, well, we'll achieve these targets is, as you say, so yesterday. Yes, you do still need to set uh you you have to because you have to keep pushing to the next but that's not what this is about it's mm -hmm. got to be about as you say moving beyond and continually taking the whole uh the whole organization in the case of a, an employer like ours with with you and i mean one of the things that i'm really proud about that we're, again we're just at the start of but i do think it's a demonstration of that moving beyond is um almost bottom up but i think it has hopefully come as a result of leadership too through things like the lived experience um, program that I talked about a moment ago is we've now got community groups that are led by colleagues across the organization so we've got LGBTQ plus we've got um, a faith group we've got a women's group we've got um, a racial uh, equality group so we've got these groups that are being led literally led which is just so brilliant by the people inside the organization they're not governed in that sense they're not a leadership led I do go to some other colleagues from the exec go to them. We come along when we can add some value. But the great thing about that is it's 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 a movement that's happening. And I'd like to think that's an example. Going back to again Rebecca's great question, that's when you know you're you're at the cusp of a turning point. Doesn't mean to say it's turned. Doesn't mean to say that it's all embedded in the way you want. But you know that you are starting to move beyond. So I think it's organisations needing to look at those sorts of approaches and when you get that ripple effect and that bottom-up grassroots movement happening is when i think you can start to hope that you are getting to the kind of moving beyond places that you talked about and of course we shouldn't ignore i don't want to i don't want to turn this into a return on investment conversation but you know all of the data all the reports more than suggest there is a return on investment for an organization whether you're a charity with your plc whatever you're doing the more you invest in your diversity inclusion and belonging the more you will see a greater return, both in attrition, both in who you attract, both in productivity. So there's like, you know, you almost feel like shaking leaders sometimes say, come on, you know, all the reasons other than just being humane and good and decent society wise, there are actual economic productivity reasons for why we need to be investing here. So yeah, that's all I'd add. I'm, I'm really Can I add just one thing? Yeah, Jay, come in, yeah. No, just because I think what because I think it's important an important point. Why go beyond? And I think in my in my mind, and it's clear in the literature and everything. If you if you just uh, investigate just a little bit, the system is set up primarily, you know, with a straight white cisgendered male. That's the leadership archetype that's accepted. You know, mm -hmm. so if you go beyond, what does that what does that mean exactly? It's mean, being saying it's saying I can show up as a queer person as I am, lead how I am meant to lead. You know, do the work that I need to do. And, and that when it doesn't match the system, you know, that's not set up for me, that's the problem. You know, so moving beyond is like dismantling the system a bit. And a lot of people talk about that. I'm not talking about toppling, 
<laughs> you know, the, the global system. It's saying, make, make room for me. Yeah, yeah. Make exactly. room for Tanya. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd onto that just quickly as well. I think it's like, not even just moving beyond, but I think it's also move, welcoming the uncomfortable. Like, I think so many organizations, mm -hmm. they, they kind of stay within the comfort zone, you know? So, and it's like, we have to listen to the very uncomfortable realities that your staff members have. Um, especially those who, again, you know, everyone lives in inter intersectional lives, but especially those who are black, PSE, Muslim, and disabled, neurodivergent, queer, LGBTQ+, trans, etc. What are their realities um, of your of being within your organisation? And actually looking into it's one thing bringing, you know, starting about all of these uh, courses. Oh yeah, we're going to bring in more black or PSC or more LGBTQ+ staff members, but are you going to retain them? And again, I I think the longest time I've worked ever at any place has been two years. And it got to the point I had to leave because I suggested starting an LGBTQ plus program. And they said, well, why can't they just join all the other programs that we do? And it's like, well, great, but equally, why do you therefore see why you should have gang programs? Why should you see you have young program people and who are disabled people in care, et cetera? Why are you able to see why these young people require and deserve their own programming? But when it comes to LGBTQ plus, you say, oh, but why can't they come to everything else? And the reason why is because it made them uncomfortable. And then, but then they, you know, fast forward a few months time and then there was funding available specifically for LGBTQ plus programming. And they said, hey, Tanya, you want to start a program around trans young people? And I said, why? I said, I'm not trans. So why, who's going to deliver it? Because none of you have any understanding around LGBTQ plus identities. And I beat it. I said, if you start it, I will leave. And they didn't because I, because I'm like, but, but this is the thing. I think the issue is where they just can't retain staff because again, you only see it as like their value within certain elements. And it's like, I think there's just so much more that needs to be done and it does start with investing into your staff members investing into their training investing into their interests like lunch and learns that I used to do at my old job again that's how I understood that I was queer like if I hadn't had that lunch and learn I guarantee or hadn't worked there at that point I unfortunately would have probably still been heterosexual and that would have been sad for everybody so <laughs> it just I think there's so much that needs to be done um, and so much more and I think it does always start with being uncomfortable it's through the uncomfortability that the real change happens but that means again looking beyond having a diverse, you know, oh, uh, oh, we're going to make it move from having that all cishet, uh, you know, white men, and let's make it diverse because now we've got women involved. But it's all, you know, predominantly working class, um, upper class white women who have had been uh, university educated. Where does that fit for everyone else, you know? And I think that it requires when you stand up for something, it requires going the full way and putting the whole weight behind it. So again, if if, if there's organisations and companies and brands that are pro-trans, for example you know that the moment you say that you're pro-trans, that TERFs and like trans-speaking trans feminists, they will come and rally up in their hundreds and thousands or whatever, and they will bully companies into silence. And it happens time and time again, and it takes the point where an organizational brand has to be like, no, I support trans people, so we're gonna step ahead with it, and we're gonna do so. If you don't like us anymore, then so be it. But a lot of, and it's when it comes to push comes to shove in, in elements like that, that you really see where the business or brand stands. And whilst on a global scale, you know, maybe like, okay, it's safer for our organisation to be a bit quiet and not maybe talk about trans issues. Um, however, that may mean that maybe the one trans staff member now that you've got within your organisation actually now feels unsafe on the basis that they feel like you don't stand up for them. And that is where the internal versus the external really has to, you have to kind of align them both because everyone can be impacted and the internal staff members need to feel safe and need to feel like you genuinely believe what you're saying before you start preaching out to the uh, wider world around where you stand when it doesn't align with what you actually do internally. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it, it is possible to make that change, but it does start with being comfortable.
Well, I, yeah, it, it's such a great phrase, isn't it? Welcoming the uncomfortable. Of course, most people spend most of their time trying not to face up to the uncomfortable. Yeah. And to, in organisations and employers, we put up um, defences uh, that, that um, are the absolute antithesis of all the behaviour and uh, the, the, the experience that you, you've been sharing um, with us. Um, and, and there's um, a need for those leaders to be courageous, um, to, to, to to enable that to happen as you're illustrating just on a practicality um i, I want to say that the um session just to remind people is being recorded and it is available because there are people watching this who are doing stuff in their own organizations and saying could i show this to my governing body for example well yes actually they probably do need to uh, welcome the uncomfortable in that case and if the experiences that we're talking about here can be helpful to move that along please use this as a, a resource i'm sure we can kind of sort all of that out for you equally the questions that have been coming in we can't answer all of them um, we can pick up some things but not all of them but as sally will say when we just come to the, the close we'll capture them all and we will make sure that there are answers given in as far um, as far as we can um, to to our panelists and oh, i want to make the point about the business case that's all that just it was really good that kirsty just said that because for some people that will that will be the way in and then you have to go beyond because if you haven't got that they wouldn't be bought in in in, in the first place and actually impact reports and and um uh, business cases are actually valid anyway um as are getting the awards uh for uh being um a, an lgtbq plus friendly organization or what, whatever and and the stonewall awards uh, were referenced in one of the questions as as well and stonewall materials um uh, i don't have any personal experience of those but if anybody wants to sort of pick that up i'm sure we can have a look at it certainly the celebration um uh, of uh, uh, of, of organisations and what employers do is another way that makes people who might be a bit afraid, afraid of tackling this stuff because they just don't know how, it makes them feel good about it. Um, uh, so I think those are all very helpful and valid things. <laughs>
you know, because as in his role, not just as, a, as the chair of the council, but also in his role as a leader, you know, and I think it transformed the way that uh, he, he led. And I think I've seen that replicated over and over again. The opposite then is, as we've also heard, that has nothing to do with me, which we know is not true. It's funny, actually, Jay, just on that, I mean, uh, and just on that point about being curious, I mean, if I think back, as I say, to the work we've done as a leadership team with the exec, there is no doubt, and I'm, I don't know whether any of my exec colleagues are on this listening, they might be, but we had some really quite uncomfortable moments through this past year, especially as we went through the lived experience where, uh, and, and I, I'm sorry to sort of stereotype, because we, there was comfortable moments for lots of people, but tended to be the sort of white, straight males on the on the exec team who, who were, you know, genuinely saying, well, hold on a minute, what what is the mirror I need to hold up to myself and mm. and and start to have m not executive leadership type corporate conversations but how do I get in a room and have real conversations about real emotions about real yeah. things that matter to me but matter to you and 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 that takes quite a lot of courage as Anne said before it does actually because you know do you mm. bring your whole self to work or do you bring 80% of yourself to work or which 25% do you, do you leave at home and I think everybody's starting to realize that actually you have to bring your whole self to work right you can't be two mm. people I couldn't I couldn't cope with being a different person at home to why I am in the workplace so but not everybody is comfortable with that straight away so there is something about what you've just said that I think is true probably for every organization actually as well just saying saying that for like is like it's you know for example there's been so many like the lunch and learns that I've done in the first organization like I've been at all other organizations to try to do similar things and I was at one and you know they said you could you choose a topic or issue that you're passionate about and you you know do lead a training or lead a workshop on it the whole team you know and I done one of our white privilege and oh my god it was honestly the reception they got was terrible as in like there was and again it's just a youth organization predominantly people that we work with are people that are you know working class that are not 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 white that are uh from having you know from all these different intersections of identity and for people to sit there in a room that claim to understand the issues that's that um, impact young people to then be like Mm. Don't, I don't like white privilege, you know, I've gone through things too, we all get handed the same cards in life and I'm like, it's actually the most contradictory thing and also these are the people that are leading the messaging behind programming because again it's like, you become very clear around how people even sell the programming to the funders, aka by selling, by exploiting stories around trauma and centering things around trauma, it's why I even with this loudly, I'm very strict in saying like, we only provide stories of joy and the needs, so if you want to ask us what and um, you know, if you've got funders say, what do you, what, what are the issues that impact our young people? We can tell you, but we can say what their needs are as opposed to what their trauma are. And I think that there's this um, kind of sentiment where people, where funders and, and businesses and senior management and things, et cetera, believe they are entitled to hear the stories of trauma that people go through that they support by virtue of a very transactional, we give you money, so therefore we should hear all of the bad stories that these young people go through so we can make ourselves look better. Feel and good. It, becomes, it becomes a very like white saviorist, like, uh you know thing where it's like hey look at us helping all these poor kids and yeah. it's and it's it kind of it, it completely reduces people down to identities down to assumptions down to stereotypes and things and it's really really dangerous and it's like the and it's no and it's no you know it's no surprise why these funders have got these and have got uh these ideas are also intact said stories because the people in senior management who are liaising with these funders with the with the people that are funding the said programming are offering these stories because they don't they just see them as stories. Whereas, for example, I can't tell these stories around like like the, the experiences that my young people go through are ones that I've gone through similar and ones mm -hmm. that I genuinely like I genuinely care about. And it's like having the understanding that again, when you hire people with lived experience to do work within people from the same communities, 
equally for um, businesses and brands and, and you know employers to understand that we are impacted by it a lot more than people because it's not external to us it's very internal it's very much like I see myself in said person so maybe it means that let you know and it's, and it's even when it comes to Black History Month pride da, 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 it's often left for responsibility of people from the communities within your organization to lead the training to do all of these things but are they getting extra money paid towards it to do this extra work of course they're not you know so therefore it's really important to either pay the, or the people within, you know, within the organization or ask them, people from within the community itself to signpost you to people from their community to deliver training, to deliver, to, you know, whatever it may be, because it is, it has to be external because people internally are always going to be scared that if they say the wrong thing, they're going to lose their job. Whereas if you hire someone externally, they're getting paid anyway. You know, if I, when I get paid to go and deliver training places, I will, I can deliver it and say what I want because I'm, I'm going to get paid either way. And you know, that. Sorry, James, could we be, yeah, sorry. Uh, Sorry, Tony, to come in on that and the other point I think Jay just put in, in, in the chat as well about it's incumbent on individuals, though, to yeah. not just expect people to come and help them be curious, but mm -hmm. to actually take some responsibility as well. And, and, and actually, you know, I think you know when an organisation has really, you know, crossed that chasm, so to speak, if actually, as you were just saying then, it's not about bringing somebody in to be representative, it's about people being able to say look I, i'm a bit scared to have this conversation actually I, I i might tread on something that i'm not even sure uh you know is right but can i have the conversation with you then i think you really know you've got the right sort of conversations happening inside your organization or at least that's what i hope anyway i agree can i just add in with another question sorry i was, yeah, I was going to say sally why don't you commit the problem <laughs> with this, this, this one well, the well, energy well, in this room it's fantastic but <laughs> this is all great because you're all really you, you get it right but how would you suggest getting buy-in from an exec board perhaps if you sense that isn't the case in the organization sorry could you say that one more time how do you get how do you get buy-in from the exec board so if you're yeah, if you people get... here today are yeah. saying well this is absolutely of course this is mm. true but in my company yeah. i'm not sure how do we get buy-in yeah, and I've, I've, I've dealt with that a little bit. And I think, um, I think there's two concrete suggestions. Uh, one is say, sit over there and watch while I get to work. And this is because um, sometimes the people wait for permission, you know, and I've I had this experience with four other colleagues and we didn't have a lot of support, I would say. We just got to work anyway and we started to make a difference. And that's a whole nother story, but it was effective. Uh, the other one is tell your story. You know, so I was like, all of us have a story to tell. And I'm, if you're part of a community of difference, I'm pretty, pretty guaranteed that there's, that's not always been rosy, you know? So if you show up and say, let me tell you exactly what it's like to work here from my perspective and be op open and vulnerable, that's the most effective way that I've found is to change a mind like that. Yeah. And I just to echo. Sorry, just to echo that, I mean, that's exactly what we did with the lived experience. So I can only talk as a leader from my own experience. And it was a bit of a deep breath, brave moment because, you know, you, you didn't know what you were going to get back. And we did get some uncomfortable truths. And I'm glad we did, actually, because the learning we've had since then and the ongoing uncomfortable conversations we've had and continue to have, I'm really grateful for them now in a way that once upon a time, would we, as Anne said, would we all try to sort of avoid having them as opposed to get it out there. So I think, you know, having a programme like the lived experience, whatever your 
your equivalent might be whoever you know is interested in doing something like that you know just open up that conversation because it, 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 it means that the leader the ceo the exec have no choice but to listen and i think alongside that it goes back to my point about the roi you, you know you do have to build a business case sometimes around this as well but you build it from the human authentic point of view not from a numbers and target point of view so i think the combination of those two things Mm. Yeah, I'll add that just quickly as well. I think that it is also really important, however, to remember that, like, for staff members that maybe haven't, don't feel seen or don't feel safe, or exactly to, to bring their whole selves to work. The idea of telling somebody directly, for example, hey, this is what my first experience is, or this is what, um, how I feel in the company is, is where it's oftentimes been gaslit out of like how your experience with a certain organization or again as i said when i was told when i told my colleague the senior manager guy like oh hey this is what my young people felt and it felt very discriminatory in this place and he said but it didn't mean it that way you know and it's so it's therefore i'm not going to talk about it again you know and it's like so that's why i think for these businesses corporates whatever funders to invest in having an external person to deliver it and to have these conversations and you, you know you can record audio it can be written down it can be put into a a written report but i think it has to be also be said that it doesn't shouldn't be directly heard it doesn't have to be directly heard from individual people themselves because you will still get a watered down version of said thing because yeah. not everyone has the confidence to be able to say truthfully this is how i feel in the organization without the fear of getting fired because there's been times where you know i've been at workplace beforehand where we've, where we've expressed uh you know things around how black staff members were treated and lo and behold we both left because nothing was done and now we said it things were said were done and we got it got it was actually more it caused me more issues saying like, talking about some issues than than if i just stayed quiet and that is i think is a real reality as well that people take into account is that having an external person deliver it means that you will get the honest truth and it should and it shouldn't have to be dependent upon having a person in front of you because again it's it, that in itself especially for staff members that maybe aren't a senior is much more daunting because you feel like you've got much more to lose than somebody who's got 10 years of experience that can get another yeah. job elsewhere yeah. so i think that is also really important to take into account Really help, helpful uh, uh, advice, uh, Tanya, absolutely right. I mean, part of the difficulty, Sally, isn't it, with a session like this, there's so much we could go on for another hour because there's so many stories to tell. There's such a lot of good advice and experience to uh, to share. Um, and, and really, we've just had a, a, a hugely rich insight uh, from Tanya and Jay and, and Kirsty today. But I know just in coming to a close on this, you want to ask people to make a, a pledge, don't you? So shall I yeah. and can I just hand over to you now to, to do the closing uh, remarks? Thank you. Yeah. Just to encourage people to um, to do something after this so that it isn't just something you came along to, that you did something next. So you should be able to see now on the details of this, We've got a few more events coming up over the next few weeks. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the day and the lovely sunshine that's still out there. And um, yes, thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can listen to the next podcast in which we will explore women inclusion in male-dominated industries. You can also watch the webinar series and pledge your support at www.cityandguildsfoundation.org.